0: Hello, this is William Fink and this is Chris at Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 9th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today Melissa and I are in the Philadelphia suburbs communing with several wonderful brethren, Matthew Ott, Mike Delaney's on the way, Star Opperman from the Christoginia Forum, and they're all sitting here listening. I'm sorry they can't participate in this particular program. It might be fun. Perhaps tomorrow night it'll be a different story if they're still here. We've met, along the way, brethren in Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and... North Carolina over the last several days. We've met many wonderful people that we are blessed to know. Tonight we're going to be presenting Clifton Emeheiser's special notices to all who deny two seed line part six. We will be presenting these on Friday nights for the next several weeks probably four or five more weeks as we travel. Our next stop I hope by this time will be to see Clifton-Emeheiser Clifton in Western Ohio. I spent some time this morning poking around for material to preface this program with, as I've been picking on particular people at the beginning of each of these programs, because we need to... Establish a firm academic basis that agrees with Scripture, history, and and not only the letter of Scripture but also the spirit of Scripture. That's what we seek to do at ChristaGenia. And once again, I have to pick on my old friend Rabbi Joseph November. I found a January twenty sixth, I'm sorry, a January two thousand and sixteen article that I didn't know existed until this morning written by Eli James, titled Bertrand Compare on the Adamic Race. It's posted on Eurofolk Radio because evidently Eli James isn't intelligent enough to post any of his new material on his own website, anglosaxonisrael.com, and that's just the truth. And in this article, titled Bertrand Compare on the Adamic Race, Eli goes to great lengths to uphold the so-called sixth and eighth day creation period. And aside from further criticisms of myself and Clifton Emmeheiser, he presents many other harebrained ideas, while at the same time he misrepresents our own position on Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And he misrepresents our position so that he may effectively discredit or at least pretend to effectively discredit our Genesis interpretation at least in his own mind. Once again Eli attacks the idea of recapitulation which is what he calls our claim that the Bible does indeed repeat itself and describe some things a second time in a different way in which they have already been described. Eli says in one place, and I will quote, and I'm sorry if I'm still typing. Eli says in one place where I will expand his abbreviations that Fink and Emma Heiser categorically deny the plurality of the adamic race in Genesis chapter 1. And this is an outright lie. Neither Clifton nor I have ever denied that Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 is speaking collectively of the Adamic race where it says so God created man in his own image in the image of God created he him male and female he created them Eli is creating a straw man argument ostensibly so that he can pretend to prove us wrong while he obviously never listened to pragmatic Genesis and doesn't even really know what we have said about this passage Then Eli says, and I quote, and these are the only two short quotes I have from his paper this evening, he says, their recapitulation theory, which he capitalizes, even though it doesn't really appear on my website, their recapitulation theory postulates that Genesis 2 merely provides additional information about the same day, day 6 of Genesis 1. And he says that my thesis, meaning his thesis, which he calls the chronological account, refutes this notion as being both unscriptural and unscientific. This essay, he says, will provide more evidence in favor of the chronological account as the proof of pre-Adamic white civilization continues to mount. Get that. That's an important key right there, pre-Adamic white civilization. Eli asserts that the Genesis chapter 1 man is a pre-Adamic white man. But the word for man in that chapter is the same Hebrew word Adam that we see in Genesis chapter 2. We also see it in Genesis chapter 5, where we read that this is the book of the generations of Adam, in the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. He denies that there is recapitulation in scripture, and quite strangely, he completely ignores that passage in Genesis chapter 5. If the Bible is always strictly chronological, then there must be three creations of an endemic man, and not two, which in itself is three times more ridiculous than the so-called sixth and eighth day creation theory. He can, he cannot honestly argue against recapitulation while ignoring Genesis chapter five. What a clown. There must be three creations of Adam. Eli goes on to describe perceived pre-Adamic whites, identifying them as the man of Genesis chapter 1. I do not know how he calls them pre-Adamic, since in that chapter the word for man in Hebrew is Adam. And it is ridiculous to imagine that there was a pre-Adamic Adam. He insists that the Genesis chapter 1 man is a pre-Adamic man, which is quite silly because his name was Adam. Then he sort of agrees with the assertions that Clifton and I make concerning the fallen angels and the corruption of elements of God's original creation. But he never correctly identifies pre-Adamic whites as fallen angels. If there were whites before Adam, they couldn't be Adam. Of course, the Genesis account is not complete. And Christ himself had said that he would explain things which had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Those explanations are found, in part, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, in Matthew chapter 13, and in the revelation of Yahshua Christ, which describes war in heaven, and the fall of the angels that sinned. Revelation chapter 12 puts those fallen angels on earth before the Adamic man was created. This is evident where, in the Revelation, the chief of the fallen angels is identified as that old serpent, and therefore must be the serpent of the Garden of Eden who was immediately present to corrupt our first parents. Eli claims that our assertions are unscriptural, but they are completely scriptural. He simply refuses to describe them properly. If there were pre-Adamic whites, they were fallen angels. They were the fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12. We have already proven from Scripture, as well as the elements of Hebrew grammar, in part one of our Pragmatic Genesis series presented here several years ago that the Adamic man created in Genesis chapter 1 is the same Adamic man created in Genesis chapter 2 and is also the same Adamic man created in Genesis chapter 5. Three descriptions one creation. If Eli James denies that the scriptures recapitulate certain events, certain accounts. He must explain the creation of Adamic man described at the beginning of Genesis chapter 5. But perhaps he thinks his listeners are stupid and won't raise that question. He must also explain how, after the nations of the sons of Noah were divided in the earth after the flood, as it says in Genesis chapter 10 verse 32 that we read in the very next verse, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, that the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. The truth is that Genesis chapter 11 is a recapitulation from a different perspective of the story of the division of nations described in Genesis chapter 10. In truth, Genesis chapter 2, from verse 4, Recapitulates the general account of creation given from Genesis 1 chapter, verse 25 through Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. That creation account runs from the opening verse of Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2 verse 3. And Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 through the end of chapter 4 are a separate book, a parable of the creation of our first parents and the sin attributed to them and some of the immediate results of that sin, which was manifest in the enmity between Cain and Abel. Then Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 also recapitulate Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, and continues by carrying the the account even further down through the flood of Noah. Here is an example of further recapitulation. Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26 read like this from the King James Version. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said she, has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And then, in Genesis chapter 5, just a couple of verses later, from verses 3 to 6, we read this, And Adam lived 130 years, and begot a son in his own likeness, and after his image, and called his name Seth. Well, guess what? Adam already knew his wife and had a son named Seth in Genesis 4.25. What the hell is he doing it again in Genesis 5.3? And the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years. And he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And Seth lived 105 years and begat Amos. Enos, I'm sorry, Enos. Well, guess what? Seth had a son named Enos in Genesis 4.26, and Seth had a son named Enos in Genesis 5.6. If the Adam of Genesis 1 is a different man than the Adam of Genesis 2, because the Bible does not repeat itself as Eli James claims, then the Adam of Genesis 5 must also be a different man, and there must be two Seths and two men named Enos both born to three different atoms. Either that or Eli James is lying about recapitulation because he cannot have it both ways. The arguments of Eli James in these areas are all based on logical fallacies and sophistry, which are denied by the rest of Scripture. Eli insists that Yahweh's day of rest is completed, and then he started to create things again. But in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, we see that the children of Israel still have an opportunity to join Yahweh in his day of rest once they are ever obedient to his will, which is also indicated in the 95th Psalm. So, Yahweh must still, he must still be in that day of rest. As for instance, the scriptures say in Exodus chapter 20, For in six days Yahweh made the heaven and earth, and all that is in them, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day, and there is never any mention of an eighth. So if you believe this Joseph November imposter, this charlatan who calls himself Eli James, then once again you have been convicted of your own stupidity. Now we shall commence with Clifton Emmeheiser's special notice to all who deny 2C line, Part 6. And, rather redundantly from what I just said. Clifton writes, this is the sixth in a series of special notices to all anti-seedliners who are opposed to the proposition that there is a literal walking, talking, genetic, satanic seed line of people in this world. Some have condemned me meaning Clifton for coming out and naming names concerning the controversy over this issue. They advised me that I should go personally to them and work out our differences in private. I would point out to anyone who was of that opinion that the anti-seedliners were the first to make an issue of this teaching. In other words, it's difficult to take clowns that are public and reprove them privately. Stephen E. Jones, in his 1978 book, The Babylonian Connection, was the first, to my knowledge, to take issue with the two seedliners. Jeffrey A. Weekly wrote his The Satanic Seed Line, Its Doctrine and History, in 1994. It wasn't until Ted R. Wheeland came out with a 10-tape audio cassette series, Eve, Did She or Didn't She?, that I began to counter what they were promoting. Ted R. Wheeland is the rodeo clown. Clifton says, I had written an article in 1995 entitled, The Problem with Genesis 4-1, which I did not distribute very widely. I had put that short article together because I had heard of a young man who was hung up on Genesis 4-1. Actually, there are a few million of those young men. At that time, I had no idea the anti-seedliners had a campaign going to discredit the two-seedline doctrine. Jeffrey A. Weekly, a year before I wrote my small article, was the first one to really start naming names and pointing his finger finger at some of the leading two-seedline teachers like Swift, Compare, and Gale. As these three great pillars of men are now dead, I have taken it upon myself to defend them. And this was Clifton, of course, in mid-2001, I believe. And this is probably why the original title of Clifton's most current version of the problem with Genesis 4.1, which was evidently written in May and June, I'm sorry, of 2003, I think, had reconsidered at the end of it, because Clifton had an older paper by that name, which he never really published, and Clifton later chose to drop that label. We do not think any copies of the original 1995 paper are extant, but we are persuaded that Clifton has improved upon it tremendously. So Clifton continues, and he says, you may well ask, then, what is the purpose for my writing these special notices anyway? The answer to this question is, I am duty-bound by Yahweh's law to witness to the truth to the best of my ability as I understand it. In other words, if I know a crime has been committed, in the process of being committed, or there is a danger of a crime about to be committed, if I do not witness to what I know, I am as guilty as the person committing the crime. In this case, we are not talking about a single individual crime. We are talking about tens of thousands of crimes. The news of these crimes has been withheld from the public by the usual news media and writers of the past. The law concerning the witness of a crime is found in Leviticus chapter 5 verse 1, which reads, And if a soul sins, and hears the voice of swearing, and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of it. If he does not utter it, then he shall bear his his iniquity. A second scripture which commands us to expose the truth is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, which says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. The New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, edited by Jerome Smith, says this on page 132. Such a one, speaking of Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1 such a one shall bear his iniquity shall be considered as guilty in the sight of God of the transgression which he has endeavored to conceal and must expect to be punished for hiding the iniquity which with he was acquainted and I believe the end of Romans chapter 1 Paul's words would also support that interpretation Clifton says both Jones and Weekly quote from the Zohar The sacred, Clifton has that in quotes, because it's really not sacred, book of the Kabbalah, which is separate from the Talmud. Neither Jones nor Weekly seem to be quoting directly from the Zohar, but indirectly from the Talmud Unmasked, a book written by the Reverend I.B. Pernatus on page 52. Clifton says, if this is the case... Neither one quotes this passage faithfully, such as using the proper italics where it shows. I will now quote this passage exactly as Pernatus presents it. And Clifton, quoting Pernatus, says that in Zohar, book 1, paragraph 28b, we read, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, etc., citing Genesis 3.1 more subtle that is towards evil than all the beasts that is the idolatrous people of the earth for they are the children of the ancient serpent which seduced eve the best argument used by the jews to prove christians are of a race of the devil is the fact that they are uncircumcised The foreskin of the non-Jews prevents them, and these are Pranaitis' comments on the Talmudic passage. The foreskin of the non-Jews prevents them from being called the children of the Most High God. Pranaitis describing the beliefs of the Jews. For by circumcision, the name of God, and this is really pretty sick, but this is representative of Talmudic commentaries on the name of God, and circumcision for by circumcision the name of god shaddai is completed in the flesh of a circumcised jew this is the twisted mind of the of the jew the form of the letter ish is in his nostrils the letter daleth in his bent arm and Ayin appears in his sexual organ by circumcision in non-circumcised gentiles therefore such as Christians there are only the two letters ish and daleth which make the word shed which means devil I really believe it refers to a demon or a demonic spirit they are therefore children of the shed the devil and of course reading this is almost as bad as reading one of Eli James's articles on Genesis Clifton is citing the Talmud here, according to I.B. Pernitus, or more correctly, the Zohar, because Wheland and Weekly and other anti-seedliners claim that it is the source for what we call to seedline. And they're all just liars. I could say worse. I almost said something bad, right? They're all just liars. None of the articles explaining to line, which are found at Christagenia, written by either Clifton, Emma Heiser, or myself, depend on anything from the Talmud as support for our assertions. So they are all playing a game of guilt by association, and Clifton will address that here, where he continues by addressing this nonsense. And he says that a Jew could be circumcised a hundred times, and it would not bring him under the covenant. If anything, this passage proves to see line as the enmity of Genesis 3.15, meaning in the writing of the passage itself, is clearly evident and is at work here. But the Jews have everything backwards as they are the ones who are the children of the devil. Tenar Wieland in his book Eve, Did She or Didn't She, quotes one other passage from the Talmud. Shabbat 146a where it says for when the serpent came upon eve he injected lust into her and clifton says if the purpose of the anti-seed liners is to use the old worn-out accusation of guilt by association they could have used more references from the talmud here are some passages they could have used for their ambiguous claim Shabbat 146a, quoting the 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 wider passage, the more complete version, the idea is that the serpent infected Eve, i.e. the human race, with lust, from which, however, those who accept the moral teachings of the Torah are freed. And then Berakoth 61a, another book of the Talmud. In cursing, we commence with the least... First the serpent was cursed, then Eve, and then Adam. And then Sota 9b. I will kill Adam and marry Eve, but now I will put enmity between thee and a woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And actually, the Jews that wrote the Talmud, that wrote the Sota, are actually putting those words into the mouth of God. I will kill Adam and marry Eve. But now, and that's, how, that's the sick mind of the Talmudic Jews. I will kill Adam and marry Eve, but now I will put enmity between thee and a woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Similarly, similarly I'm sorry, I tripped over that word. Do we find it with Cain, Korah, Balaam, Doeg, Ahitafel, Gehazi, Absalom, Adidas, Adaniah, Uzziah, and Haman, who set their eyes upon that which was not proper for them. What they sought was not granted to them, and what they possessed was taken from them. And of course, that's not entirely true. It's a Jewish interpretation of scripture. And, finally, from Avodah Zarah, 22b. When the serpent came unto Eve, he infused filthy lust into her. Very much like the passage that Whelan cites from the earlier book. And then Clifton asks, is there any truth in the Talmud? And of course there is, because most of scripture is repeated in the Talmud. Is there any truth in the Talmud? The anti-seedliners base their whole argument on the premise that anything found in the Talmud has to be entirely false. As a matter of fact, this is their ace in the hole, so they think. All they have to do is point out that the two seed line doctrine is found in the Talmud. And magically, the teaching is condemned in many people's minds. And I've actually experienced that. I myself have had discourse with people who follow the rodeo clown, Ted Wheeland on Facebook. And as soon as they find out that I'm the guy from Christagenia, they tell me how two seed line comes from the Talmud. And I attempt to inform them that I can prove two seed line all damn day and never quote the Talmud, but only quote the Bible. And they won't listen to it because the rodeo clown, Ted Wheeland actually has these people programmed to believe that two seed line comes from the Talmud and they won't listen to anything else. And that is why Clifton points out that what these clowns teach is indeed a sin. Clifton says, all they have to do is point out that two seed line doctrine is found in the Talmud, and magically the teaching is condemned in many people's minds. It is not my goal here to defend and uphold the majority of the contents found in these books. It is well recognized that they are the most evil books ever written but we must even give the devil his just dues, if the two seed-line doctrine is condemned for being part of the writings of the Talmud, then all of their contents are condemned. Let's take a look at a few passages found in them. And of course Clifton is going to quote passages found in the Talmud, which we know are in the Bible, but we can't condemn them simply because they're in the Talmud. Sotah 11b Sotah S-O-T-A-H Judah is called a lion's whelp Of Dan it is said Dan shall be a serpent Naphtali is called a hind let loose Issachar a strong ass Joseph a firstling bullock Benjamin a wolf that raveneth Of those sons of Jacob Where a comparison with an animal Is written in connection with them It is written But in the instances where such a comparison Is not written there is the text, which recovers all of the children of Israel. That's the, that, that is the significance of the sentence. There is the text, what was thy mother? A lioness. She couched among the lions, etc. And Clifton says in response to that, well, what do you know? Who would ever have thought there was anything like that in the Talmud? It would appear the anti-Sea Landers are going to have to reject the main tenets of Israel identity because they can be found in the Talmud. Maybe they will have to go back to judeo Christianity. They are going to have to take a black permanent marker and blot out the entire chapter of Genesis chapter 49, along with all of the cross-references, all because it can be found in the Talmud. If they blot out Judah, there goes the Redeemer. Are you beginning to see how ridiculous an argument the anti-seedliners advocate? Can you see now how dangerous the ploy of guilt by association can be? Actually, it's a Jewish kind of trick. Well, let's see what else we might find in the Talmud, and in the book Baba Kama, 17a. He is worthy of the inheritance of two tribes. He is worthy of an inheritance like Joseph, as it is written. Joseph is a fruitful bow, whose branches run over the wall. He is also worthy of the inheritance of Issachar, as it is written. Issachar is a strong ass. There are some who say, his enemies will fall before him, as it is written, with them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. He is worthy of understanding like Issachar, as it is written, and the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. And Clifton says, isn't it simply amazing what can be found in the Talmud? If we use the argument of the anti-seedliners, we are going to get into all kinds of trouble. If we apply their hypothesis, we will have to destroy most of Yahweh's written word. One very adamant, unyielding anti-seedliner is Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore, retired, who wrote a pamphlet entitled Seed of Satan, literal or figurative. He uses this same worn-out tactic of guilt by association, where he said on page 8. Now this Clifton Emma Heiser quoting Jack Moore. Now this is pretty far-fetched, I think, for it is the same teaching you find in the Babylonian Talmud, referring to Two-Sea Line, and in most heathen, phallic religions of the Far East. Wise, referring to James E. Wise, who wrote a book early on titled The Seed of the Serpent, Wise implies that the fruit of the trees of knowledge of good and evil was sexual union, even though the Hebrew word for fruit, as it is used here, means bow, fruitful, reward, there is hardly any room here for any sexual interpretation of the word. Unless your mind is sexually oriented, then I guess you can see sex in anything. Certainly, the seed liners see sex in this passage. Shows you where their mind is, doesn't it? And Clifton goes on to point out that the same word, which is fruit, in Genesis chapter 3, is defined in Jusenius' lexicon as meaning fruit, as a fruit tree, or offspring, the word being Strong's number 6529. And you only create offspring one way. Jack Moore's folly starts to become evident, where Clifton notes that the same Hebrew word for fruit is also metaphorically used to denote offspring. However, we believe his foolishness is even more pronounced, where we quoted the Epic, epic of Gil- Gilgamesh, I'm sorry, we quoted the Epic of Gilgamesh here last week, presenting part five of this series, and we saw that the sexual act was described as the possession of the ripeness of a woman and the ripeness of a woman was a term which itself described the nude body of that woman in writings from the very time of Abraham the epic of Gilgamesh was written right around the time of Abraham in a related Shemitic language why wouldn't it use the same types of idioms of course it would And Clifton says, by the way, judging from his article, Jack Moore believes that the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were wooden trees, that the serpent was an ordinary snake, and the fruit was simply some kind of fruit from some fruit tree. Thus, Jack Moore, in implying this, makes the tree of life, which is the Messiah himself, a wooden tree. I have to question anything Jack Moore might write for he does not appear to be a pure Israelite stock now I don't know about that that's Clifton's words I simply cannot say one way or another I am totally ignorant to this Gordon Jack Moore died in 2003 we have heard rumors concerning his ethnic background but did not know if they have ever been substantiated but in any event Moore was probably a lot better at writing about the evils of Freemasonry than he was about scripture. Clifton continues by describing a phenomenon that we also encounter frequently from other directions. And he says that you will also notice that Jack Moore points a finger at James E. Wise. It seems it is quite alright for the anti-seedliners to name names. But it is anathema for the two-seedliners. More on Jack Moore later. And Clifton gets back to him at the end of this paper. But for now, back to the Talmud. And quoting Sanhedrin 44b. And the sons of Zerah, Zimri, Ethan, and Hermon, and Calcol, and Darda, five in all. Why the phrase, five of them in all? Because all five were equally destined for the world to come. And Clifton says, Are we now supposed to throw out the entire Zara branch of Judah because it can be found in the Talmud? If you listen to the anti-seedliners, this is their premise. In other words, the very mention of anything found in the Talmud automatically labels it as an evil teaching. And then again, quoting the Talmud, the... Megillah 17a, or the MAS period, Megillah 17a. I don't know if that's a Masoretic book or what MAS stands for. I apologize. Why are the years of Ishmael mentioned? So as to reckon them by the years of Jacob, as it is written. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. How much older was Ishmael than Isaac? 14 years, as it is written. And Abraham was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. And it is also written, And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And it is written, And Isaac was threescore years old when she bore them. How old then was Ishmael when Jacob was born? Seventy-four. How many years were left of his life? 63. And it has been taught, Jacob our father, at the time when he was blessed by his father, was 63 years old. It was just at that time that Ishmael died, as it is written. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, so Esau went unto Ishmael and took Malath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Now once it has been said Ishmael's daughter, do I not know she was the sister of Nebaioth? This tells us that Ishmael affianced, or engaged, engaged her and then died, and Nebioth, her brother, gave her in marriage. 63 and 14 till Joseph was born make 77. And it is written, and Joseph was 33 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. This makes 107. Add seven years of plenty and two of famine, and we have 116. And it is written, And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, How many are the days of the years of thy life? And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of thy sojournings are a hundred and thirty years. But we have just seen that they were only a hundred and sixteen. We has been, we must conclude therefore that he spent fourteen years in the house of Eber as it has been taught after Jacob had, after Jacob our father had left for Aram Naharim or Padanaram two years Eber died. He then went forth from where he was and came to Aram Naharain. From this it follows that when he stood by the well he was 77 years old. And how do we know that he was not punished for these 14 years? As it has been taught, we find that Joseph was away from his father 22 years, just as Jacob our father was absent from his father. But Jacob's absence was 36 years it must be then that the 14 years which he was in the house of eber are not reckoned and there's a lot of convoluted thinking there i'm sorry we find certain errors and fantastic conjectures in these talmudic calculations but here clifton has his own comments and he says that while i have not yet checked this entire passage for error It appears this part of the Talmud could be used as a valuable tool for figuring badly needed chronology. It does highlight some things from scripture, but they are from scripture. While I know that Jews cannot call Jacob their father through the covenant, the evidence presented here could be used to confirm much of what is not recorded in our present Bibles. Therefore, I believe some passages from the Talmud would be creditable to our research if we are careful how we use them. The two-seed-line doctrine without exception. I have several other passages of the Talmud which I could quote to enforce my position, but I think by this time you can see my point. In fact, if I were to use keywords in the Old Testament and run them in the search mode of my copy of the Talmud on CD in my computer, no doubt I could come up with at least 500 examples of truth contained in these writings. While I, while I do not recommend the Talmud as a good source of inspiration, nevertheless it is not 100% totally false information as the anti-seedliners imply. I only wish I had a copy of the Zohar on CD. Some might condemn me for studying the Talmud, but how else can we be as wise as serpents unless we know what the enemy has written? After all, I don't hear anyone condemning Reverend I.B. Pernatus, Henry Ford, or Elizabeth Dilling. Now, in reality, the Zohar is actually a book of the Kabbalah. And the Kabbalah is, as Clifton said earlier, a work which is separate from the Talmud. The Kabbalah, including the Zohar, were, were written in the 13th or perhaps the 12th, but most likely in the 13th century AD. In Iberia, Spain or Portugal. I think Spain, but I'm not really not. I'm really forgetful. It may have been Portugal, but I think Spain. As for Pernitus, Ford, and Dilling, All three of these people had spent some time studying the Talmud in order to better understand the Jews whom they considered their enemies. Clifton continues under the subtitle. Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore shoots himself in the foot several times. And I think he used mortar rounds to do it, not just a pistol. Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore plays the con game a little differently than some. In his 26-page booklet, Seat of Satan, Literal or Figurative, he uses the first six paragraphs to brag on his military service. He gives a review of how he served in Korea as an advisor to the Southern Korean forces about being captured, tried and condemned to die by the People's Court, how he escaped and was the first to be decorated by General William Dean how he repatriated American prisoners returning from North Korean prison camps, and how he was a speaker for the American Opinion Speakers Bureau. By trying to influence you with such an impressive military record, he tries to lead you to believe that this qualifies him to be an authority on the scriptures. If he didn't do any better in the military than he did in his booklet, I thank the Almighty I never served under his command. You will see what I mean in a moment. And this is a mistake that we make often. Someone who is an expert in one field is not exactly an expert in another. Eustace Mullins is a great example. Eustace Mullins did quite well with the Federal Reserve under the guidance of Ezra Pound. But he was a terrible Interpreter of scripture, especially since he knew very little of ancient history. Just because a man is a great engineer or a great pilot does not make him a great authority in other fields. Often expertise in a single field requires a lifetime of study. Clifton continues and he says, after acknowledging that there is an argument in identity circles concerning the two sea line interpretation of Genesis 315, Jack Moore begins by attacking James Wise on his thesis, The Seed of the Serpent. On pages 4 and 5, he attempts to define the Hebrew words enmity, seed, and tree, as found in Genesis 3. On the word enmity, he shoots himself in the foot for the first time. Here is what he says, quote-unquote. Let's look at a few more key words in this verse, Genesis 3.15 enmity, the Hebrew word bin, meaning between, among, or within, it actually has seven meanings. Only the three mentioned above can fit this setting. And here we corrected a slight mistake which Clifton made, as Moore was claiming that the Hebrew word for enmity was Strong's number 996, not 966. Regardless of that small error, Clifton is right. Admittedly, I have not read it myself, but we have a copy of Moore's paper, Seat of Satan, literal or figurative, posted at our israelelect.com website. The purpose of that site is to preserve Christian identity writings in general, whether we find them agreeable or not. Whether Moore was being sly or stupid, we do not know. But his definition comes from a preposition, translated in the King James Version of Genesis 3.15 as between. And it is not the word for enmity, which Clifton describes here, and which Moore had ignored. And Clifton continues, As I was reading his booklet over very carefully, it did not seem plausible that the word enmity could mean between, among, or within. I then decided to check with my complete word study Old Testament by Dr. Spiros Zoriates, I'm sorry, Zoriates, which has the Strong's Hebrew numbers above each word. I discovered the word was not 996 at all, but number 342, a bar, a bar is the word at number 342. I found further that the word had only one meaning, not seven. In the Jesenius Hebrew County lexicon to the Old Testament, which sometimes uses several pages to define a word, it says only this as the meaning enmity, or a hostile mind. The Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible in the Hebrew and County Dictionary defines the meaning of the same word for enmity as a Ba. From number 340, which is ayab, which is hostility, enmity, or hatred. Because the Hebrew word number 340 is referred to, we must take that one into consideration also. Ayab, a primitive root, to hate as one of an opposite tribe or party. Hence, to be hostile, to be an enemy. So Jack Moore very carelessly very carelessly wrote about the definition for the word enmity for Genesis 3.15 and instead of defining a "ba" as enmity or hatred as it should be defined he substituted the preposition that meant between which is very very sloppy biblical exegesis Clifton continues and says, For further confirmation that the word enmity means hostility, let's consider some passages where that same word, a boss, Strong's number 342, is found. According to the Wigram's Englishman's Hebrew County Concordance of the Old Testament, the word is used only five times. Once in Genesis 3.15, and also in Numbers chapter 35 in verses 21 and 22, and in Ezekiel 25.15 and 35, five, chapter 35, verse 5. And Clifton says, now let's read these and compare them to Genesis 3.15. And we will read wider passages than Clifton had originally cited, so that we really get the meaning of this Hebrew word for enmity in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity, a ba. Between thee and a woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And more was defining between, instead of enmity. Numbers 35, verses 21 and 22. The revenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. When he meets him, he shall slay him. But if he thrusts him of hatred, or hurls at him by laying of weight, that he dies, or in enmity he smites him with his hand, that he dies, he that smote him shall surely be put to death, for he is a murderer, the revenger of blood shall slay the murderer when he meets him. But if he thrust him suddenly without enmity, or has cast upon him anything without laying of weight, or with any stone wherewith a man may die, seeing him not, and cast it upon him that he dies, and was not his enemy, neither sought his harm, Then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the revenger of blood according to these judgments, and the congregation shall deliver the slayer out of the hand of the revenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to the city of his refuge where he was fled, and he shall abide in it until the death of the high priest, which was anointed with the holy oil. So here we see clearly that enmity is hatred, and killing a man in hatred warrants a penalty of death. Whereas killing a man without hatred, but accidentally, does not warrant a penalty, a penalty of death. However, here it is speaking of Israelites. And in Genesis 3.15, we see where Yahweh God informs us that there would be mutual hatred between two distinct parties who are of different seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in the next two passages the word which was translated as enmity in Genesis chapter 3 and in Numbers chapter 35 was instead translated as hatred in the King James version and Ezekiel 25 verses 15 and 16 say thus saith Yahweh because the Philistines have dealt by revenge and have taken vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy it for the old hatred that same word enmity in Genesis 3.15 therefore thus says Yahweh God behold I will stretch out my hand upon the Philistines and I will cut off the keratims and destroy the remnant of the seacoast and then in Ezekiel chapter 35 verses 5 and 6 where it is speaking it is an oracle speaking to Mount Seir which represents the children of Esau the Edomites who dwelt at Mount Seir because thou hast had a perpetual hatred, that word translated enmity in Genesis 3.15, because thou hast had a perpetual hatred, and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity, in the time that their iniquity had an end. Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh God, I will prepare thee unto blood, and blood shall pursue thee. Seeth or sense thou hast not hated blood, even blood shall pursue thee. So we see that a perpetual hatred was held by the Edomites against the children of Israel. And it can be established that the enmity of Genesis 3.15 is also the root cause of that hatred, as the children of Esau are also the descendants of Cain by their mothers, for which reason Paul had called Esau a fornicator. And Clifton concludes, and he says you can see very clearly here that this is a very vicious and murderous type of enmity, meaning the enmity in Genesis 3.15. And Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore says this word enmity means between, among, or within. This blunder alone should discredit his entire thesis on the subject of two-seed-line doctrine. Because he lied. He clearly lied. Lieutenant Colonel Jack Morden shoots himself in the foot again, in his Seat of Satan, literal or figurative, on page 10, commenting on 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, when he says that when the Apostle Paul admonished the church at Corinth not to be a partaker of Eve's sin, he said, for I fear, lest by any means as the serpent, and more has a parenthetical comment here. If it was Satan, why didn't Paul say so? He was usually outspoken when it came to naming the adversary. If the serpent beguiled, and he has another parenthetical remark that this word beguiled is Strong's number 1185, the Greek word deleazo." If the serpent beguiled, meaning to entrap, allure, beguile, or entice, Eve. And Moore has another parenthetical remark stating that there's nothing of a sexual nature here, which is a lie. If the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, and he says that that word is panergus, meaning shrewd or craftiness, which is true, that she should be corrupted from the simplicity that was in Christ. Moore's um, statement isn't quite grammatically complete. He's missing a pronoun or so there. And Clifton says, again, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore uses the wrong Strong's number. This time, it is the word beguiled in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. The Strong's number for beguiled in this case is 1818, the Greek word exapeteo, not 1185, the Greek word deliazo. Moore is correct that the word at 1185 Deleazzo, means to entrap, allure, or entice, but I repeat, it is not the word used in 2 Corinthians 11:3, and that is a, a that that is a notable mistake on Moore's part. Part, it's not as fatal as the mistake he used, he made concerning the word enmity in Genesis 3.15, where he defines enmity in Genesis 3.15 as a preposition. That is a fatal mistake. This is a significant mistake because it shows that he is academically very sloppy, but it's not a fatal mistake because he only had a synonym, basically. He had a synonym confused. And Clifton says, you could see from this, if the meaning is that which Moore implies, the word most likely would have been paralogizomahi, Strong's number 3884, to deceive by false reasoning. And Clifton says that because Moore in other paragraphs apart from that explanation had implied that Eve was only mentally seduced and not physically seduced, which is absolutely ridiculous because she was punished for a crime. If it was only a thought crime, it would not have been punished. There are no thought crimes which are punished in scripture, not one. Evil thoughts are evil thoughts, but there is no sin until there's an action on the evil thoughts. We all have evil thoughts every single day. I don't know one man or woman that can't, that, that, that doesn't or that can claim not to have an evil thought every single day. We all think of something bad about one another or about somebody that we, we we barely know or somebody that we see in a picture or, or on a street we all have evil thoughts about somebody every single day sometimes we wish evil on people that don't really deserve it sometimes we have lustful thoughts that are unseemly It it's an array there's an array of different sorts of evil thoughts that we could have but every person think something evil about somebody or something every single day, but it's not sin. It's only sin when we act it out, when we fulfill the act that's sin. So we train our bodies and our minds not to act on evil thoughts and to suppress them, to reject them, because we can't help but to have evil thoughts flash into our minds. Eve did not commit a thought crime. Only real crimes are punished by the law of God, and even Adam were both punished. And the law was not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the only law they had at that time. So this was not a thought crime. If it was a thought crime, Clifton is saying it would have been properly described by the Greek word paralogizomahi. And Paul and other New Testament writers use that word to describe a deceit by false reasoning. And Clifton says, again, I repeat, the correct word in 2 Corinthians 11.3 is ex apitao or ex apeteo, which means to beguile thoroughly. The Thayer Greek-English lexicon takes us to an unusual scripture on that word, that Greek word, idiopocrypha, in the history of Susanna, verse 56, which reads, So he put him aside, and commanded to bring the other, Daniel, judging two supposed witnesses, to an act who were false witnesses, put one aside, and commanded to bring the other, and said unto him, O thou seed of Canaan, and not of Judah, beauty has deceived thee, that same word, Strong's number 18.18, 18, that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 11.3, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 11.3, Beauty has deceived thee, and lust has perverted thine heart and clifton makes a note contrasting the attempted seduction of susanna by canaanite jews to the seduction of eve where the greek of the apocrypha and that of paul use the same word to describe each that of paul in two corinthians eleven three And Clifton then commences by describing what happened to Susanna and saying that this is the story of a woman of great beauty who lived with her wealthy husband Joachim in Babylon where he held court in his house. About Joachim's house was a large garden where Susanna strolled and bathed herself during the heat of the day. One day after the litigants had left, two Canaanite Jewish elders inflamed with desire for Susanna plotted among themselves to force her affections preparing to bathe after her maids had departed they confronted her with the alternative of either submitting to them meaning sexually or being exposed as having an affair with a young man upon this susanna chose to be unjustly accused rather than submit upon this these Canaanite Jews gave their false testimony at the court the following day and she was found guilty but there was a judge by the name of Daniel who was not swayed by their false testimony and requested a new examination of the witnesses after parting the witnesses Daniel examined them separately demanding them to identify the tree in the garden where Susanna and her alleged lover were seen their contradictory answers betrayed their treachery and Daniel said to them, as quoted in verse fifty-six, "O thou seed of Canaan, and not of Judah, beauty has deceived thee, and lust has perverted thine heart. Clifton then concludes, I will continue with Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore in the next special notice. Yahweh willing, we shall pick up at that point here next Friday. Perhaps even with Clifton himself, we are going to try to make it to Clifton's home in time for next week's presentation. Perhaps I can twist his arm into participating with me. Perhaps not, but I could have fun trying. I know that Clifton is listening to this as I speak. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. And good night. (coughs)